draw all people to myself. He said this to show the kind of death he is going to die. The crowd spoke up. We have heard from the Lord that the Messiah will remain forever. So how can you say, the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is the Son of Man? Then Jesus told them, you who are going to have the light just a little longer. Walk while you have the light before darkness overtakes you. Whoever walks in the dark does not know where they are going. Believe in the light while you have the light so that you may become children of light. When he had finished speaking, Jesus left and hid himself from them. morning. Would you pray with me as we come to God's word? Father, we ask that this word we've just read together, uh, you would take and, and bless it to us, and that your word, even amongst us, wouldn't return to you void. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Wonder, have you ever had a conversation with someone, whether it's uh, at work or in your family or at a Christmas party or somewhere, where you're just on totally different wavelengths? Now, a conversation needs you to have at least a little bit of cooperation with the person that you're talking to, to find a little bit of mutual common ground for it to get anywhere. Otherwise, you're just talking around each other, aren't you? There's lots of words, but there's very little progress. Sometimes uh, interviews between media personalities and uh, certain politicians can be a bit like that. I don't know if you've noticed. A question is asked and there's lots of words spoken, but you can't help but feel the question is just kind of being ignored and hijacked to push someone else's party line. It's very frustrating. But sometimes the thing that makes conversation disjointed isn't just competing different agendas. Sometimes there's genuine confusion going on because the two people who are talking are just so different. They think differently, they communicate differently, uh, they're coming from very, very different spaces and there's genuine confusion and you get stuck because you just don't see eye to eye. You don't, it's like you don't speak the same language. I suspect a lot of people found themselves out of their depth when they landed in conversations with Jesus. Not that Jesus was unapproachable or that uh, he wasn't a good listener. I suspect it has more to do with the fact that Jesus is just so different to any of the people that he, that he talked to, that he rubbed shoulders with. His perspective is unique because he comes with God's perspective. His priorities are different because they're God's priorities. So I wonder if you could imagine yourself... Uh, Somehow, 2,000 years ago, if you happened to be living in Jerusalem, going about your business like people back then did, and you happen to find yourself walking where Jesus was walking, and so there you go, you have an opportunity to have a conversation with Jesus of Nazareth. And you've heard a little bit about him, as I'm sure everyone in Jerusalem would have. And this is your chance to have a chat with him. Would you be like one of the many religious experts of the day coming to him with some theological question? that you've always wanted to know the answer to or to test him on? Or would you be like one of the many who you'd bring up something that you need for yourself or maybe for someone that you love, you need his help? Or there's a situation in your life that if only he'd you know, speak into, it might make all the difference. 
And I wonder if you, like so many others who, who did the same things, would have been confused, to put it mildly, or just blown out of the water, more likely, by what Jesus chooses to say to you, what he chooses to do for you in response. Because time and time again, what's recorded for us uh, in the accounts in the Bible, you see Jesus lifting people's eyes up beyond their own belly buttons to a totally different agenda. He takes their felt needs and their questions that they bring to him and he exceeds expectations. And so in the passage that we're looking at today, John chapter 12, which we read together uh, just then, uh, verses 20 to 36, we see again people interacting with Jesus. We see them asking him questions and making requests, but he doesn't technically answer any of them. I don't know if you noticed that, at least not in the way that they're expecting. The seems to sort of meet nowhere, really. Look at the first group. Uh, there's these Greeks who arrive in verse 20. So uh, chapter 12, starting at verse 20. Now, there were some Greeks among those who went up to worship at the festival. They came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, with a request. Sir, they said, we would like to see Jesus. Philip went to tell Andrew. Andrew and Philip in turn told Jesus. We don't know anything at all about these Greeks. We're not told much in the text, but it doesn't seem to matter. The question, the request is, sir, we'd like to see Jesus. Uh, that's what they asked to Philip, who then it seems like Philip's not so sure, so he asked Andrew and then they together go and tell Jesus, look, there's some Greeks here who want to come see you. And you'd expect the answer to be either, yes, uh, let him come in, or no, I don't have time right now, or something to that effect, followed by a story of Jesus meeting these Greeks or not meeting them. But that's not what happens, is it? Instead, it seems as soon as Jesus hears that some Greeks want to meet him, it's as if something clicks in Jesus' head and he's triggered by this for some sort of reason and he knows, and so he says, verse 23, Now the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. And you're not even told whether these poor Greeks are left standing in the cold or whether they actually get the meet and greet that they're after. But it's apparently irrelevant because something much bigger is about to happen. Uh, people, you can imagine, were meeting people every day and the Greeks may well have had their chance at some point, we're just not told. But Jesus says, now is the hour. Now is the time. You've heard him say uh, in the account in John so far, time and time again up to this point, that my hour has not yet come, my time has not yet come, says Jesus. Uh, back in chapter 7, when some of Jesus' brothers are going up to some religious festival in Jerusalem and they're trying to get Jesus to go with them to make a name for himself. So uh, in chapter 7, verse 3, Jesus' brothers said to him, Leave Galilee, go to Judea with us so that your disciples there may see the works you do. No one who wants to become a public figure acts in secret. Since you are doing these things, show yourself to the world for even his own brothers did not believe in him. And Jesus told them, My time is not yet here. For you any time will do. Uh, the world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify that its works are evil. You go to the festival, I'm not going to the festival because my time has not yet fully come. Or, you know, a little bit later when Jesus gets himself in trouble teaching in the temple. He's saying things that a lot of people didn't really like hearing. Uh, chapter 7, verse 30. 
At this they tried to seize him, but no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. You see that little line, his hour, his time has not yet come, plenty of times. Because he keeps on teaching about how him and God the Father are one, which sounds like blasphemy to the Jews and they don't believe him, they don't like him. And time and time again they try to get him, but we're told no one could lay a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. Chapter 8 verse 20 is the same sort of thing. Until now, until now in chapter 12, the hour has come, says Jesus, for the Son of Man to be glorified. He says essentially, this is my time, starting from now. Before, like when after Jesus had fed the 5,000 people in uh, the desert, that miracle he did with a little bit of bread and some, some fish, and the people after they saw him do that and saw his power, they wanted to make him king, didn't they? But Jesus refused. But now, he says, now is the time for the Son of Man to be glorified. For some reason, Jesus knows that now is the time for his inauguration, for his, for his honouring, for his glory. But the shape of his glory that he goes on to talk about is unique. It's cross-shaped. And at first glance, it doesn't look like glory at all. And so as you read on in our passage today, you see that Jesus, when he speaks, he knows full well that his being glorified is going to be in his execution and in his death. Listen to his rather odd words. Verse 24. Very truly I tell you, Jesus says, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. And then down to verse 27. Now my soul is troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? No, it was for this very reason I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice from heaven uh, came from heaven. I have glorified it and I will glorify it again. The crowd that was there heard it uh, and said it had thundered. Others said an angel had spoken to him. Jesus said, this voice was for your benefit, not mine. Now is the time for judgment on this world. Now is the prince of this world driven out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show the kind of death he was going to die. So you see that he's definitely talking about being glorified here when he speaks about dying. A glorious death. Normally speaking, if you're, if you're going to glory in something, you'd glory in something like, I don't know, like your strength. If you're an athlete or some sort of um, person who's, who's healthy and your body is fit and you're able to do incredible things, those are the things that you glory in. But death on a cross is not your normal picture of strength, is it? It's the opposite. It, it, it's weak and it's defeat. Or maybe you might glory, if you're young and beautiful, you might glory in your physical appearance, but an execution is just about the ugliest thing you can imagine. Or you might glory in your skills and in your achievements, but what might, be Jesus, what might Jesus be achieving here in his death? And that question might get us closer to what we're after. What glorious thing is achieved by Jesus in his death? 
He says, him being lifted up on the cross, that kind of death, that is this glorious thing that his whole life had been leading up to. This is the very reason that he came. And it's no small thing for Jesus. He says in verse 27, you see it there, Now my soul is troubled. But what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? No, it's for this very reason I came to this hour. And so this final prayer there is, Father, glorify your name. Your will be done. We get a hint from Jesus about what his death will do in verse 24. It's a mini analogy about a grain of wheat, a kernel of wheat, that I suspect would have made a lot of sense to the people who were familiar with farming uh, at the time. He says in verse 24, Very truly I tell you, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. We kind of get that in if we're not into farming, I suspect. You bury the kernel of wheat so that a crop will rise. The death bears fruit. So I think he's saying to them, my pathway to glory is through death. And in that death, I will bear a lot of fruit. Including from from these Greeks who want to come and see me. And I will not and I cannot bear this fruit any other way except through dying. Do they want to see me? Like so many others, even uh, in the previous passage, you would have seen Jesus entering Jerusalem and the streets were lined with people wanting to see this king. Massive crowd turns up to just get a glimpse of this man who might be king. Do they want to see me, Jesus says? This is what I want them to see. See me dying. See me bearing fruit. And in that death, you will be saved. The Greeks will be saved. All those who believe in me will be saved. He fleshes it out for us a little bit down in verse 31. Again, talking about this hour that has come. Verse 31. He says, Now is the time for judgment on this world. Now the prince of this world will be driven out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. You see, there are three things that Jesus achieves in his death. The judgment on the world has come. In fact, Jesus, he takes on our judgment, our guilt on himself. The second thing is the prince of this world, the devil, is driven out. Now that there's a way out of our slavery and sin and death, Slavery to sin and death is no longer the thing Satan holds over us and so we're free. And thirdly, Jesus says, he draws all people to himself as they see him on the cross. And I know someone dying on a cross is not a visually, aesthetically beautiful thing. It's, this device of execution was gruesome in its mechanics. And yet Christ crucified holds the most wondrous attraction for us when you see what he's doing and you know why he's doing it. When you see that he's doing it because he loves you so that you can be set free, that you can have forgiveness from God. God not counting your sins against you because they've been paid for. And when you see that, when you understand what he's doing, 
and he's absolutely glorious. Now notice the crowd's response, verse 34. The crowd spoke up, We've heard from the Lord that the Messiah will remain forever. So how can you say the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? And this is what I was talking about at the start. They are totally on a different wavelength. They don't get it. And so they ask uh, what they ask, and Jesus doesn't really answer their question either. If you read on, you see he just urges them again to believe in him because they're not asking the right questions and what they really need is to just believe in him while they have the time. Jesus tells them, you're going to have the light just a little while longer. Walk while you have the light before darkness overtakes you. And so on. So where does that leave us? I think at least that we've got to be people who believe in Jesus. But do you notice the couple of verses that I skipped over in the middle there that, that I'll deal with now? Verses 25 and 26. Where Jesus seems to be saying that his dying for our salvation is also the design for our imitation. Look at verse 25 and 26. Right in the middle of what he's saying about him going to the cross in glory. He says this, Anyone who loves their life will lose it, while anyone who hates their life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Whoever serves me must follow me, and where I am, my servant will also be. My Father will honour the one who serves me. Did you get that? He says, follow me. And you know where he's going, right? He's going to the cross. Follow me. And what Jesus is asking us is hard. The grain of wheat must fall into the ground and die. And that's hard. He calls us to hate our lives in this world. Verse 25, anyone who uh, loves their life will lose it, while anyone who hates their life in this world... I mean, that's hard, especially in a lucky country like we have in Australia where you know, there's a lot to like. And yet the call is to give up our self-focused dreams and aspirations and comforts and enjoyments in this life. And to verse 26 to follow Jesus as he goes to the cross. And if you keep looking in 26, we're supposed to roll up our sleeves and serve, which is a humble and a lowly thing to do. The gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life and few are those who find it. It's hard to die. It's hard to hate your life in this world. It's hard to follow Jesus on the road that leads to the cross and it's hard to serve. It's hard. But as it is for Jesus, so it is for us. It's hard, but it's glorious. Just because something is hard doesn't make it insignificant and not worth doing. Don't miss this. The glory that Jesus promises more than outweighs the hardness of it all. Yes, the seed dies. But in dying, in spending itself, it bears much fruit. Yes, we hate our life in this world, but do you see that it means we'll keep it for eternal life. What you give up, what you lay down, this side of glory, the promise is you'll find in generous abundance in the life to come. And yes, we're walking bearing our cross, but Jesus is right there with us. And there is nowhere better than to be right where Jesus is. 
And yes, it's humbling to serve, but did you see that God says, He Himself, the Father, gives honour to those who serve. As I was uh, reading through this this week, couldn't help but think and remember so many examples that I've seen in my life of um, Christian people I look up to who've gone and done this, exactly this. Who've gone the way of Jesus, the hard way, uh, but a way of glory. And even this morning as I was coming in, I bumped into uh, Judy and Brian and was just remembering uh, Jeff and Beth all the way in Central Asia. Uh, many of you know them and love them and pray for them. Uh, some of you don't. Uh, Jeff, I remember, was my Sunday school teacher when I was a kid. And just before he left to serve as a missionary in Central Asia, I remember um, just not really understanding why he'd want to up and leave. He had a pretty, from my perspective as a, as a, as a, as a kid, uh, he was a good guy, he, he was a capable, and Beth too, they're, they're both incredibly capable people, comfortable in, with their life in Australia, had lots of uh, opportunities to serve God here. Wonderful, brilliant people with a secure job and, and, and he was a brilliant guy. Choosing to uproot uh, with his family to go to the middle of Central Asia to an area known for corruption everywhere to bring hope and the gospel to that part of the world where otherwise they might never hear about Jesus. And it sounded like madness because how would their families survive? How would their kids grow up? How would they send their kids to school? How would they deal with the opposition that would be around every corner? And you hear them send reports back over the years about how they're trying to bring water and irrigation into this dry, literally dry country but every single step of the way, as they make a little bit of progress, someone wants to make a quick buck out of them and try to get them to bribe them or you know, uh, to, to stop the progress of, of what's really a desperate situation in a pretty desperate place. And yet they persevere through all the mess and all the crap that they have to go through every day. They persevere. Finally, you hear about uh, one of the, Nick, one of the people who work uh, on the farm with them, seeing Jeff in his Christian uh, character and example become, uh, and Nick is so impressed that he starts following Jesus himself. And the persecution rains down on Nick and Jeff and Beth. And you start thinking, is it worth it? You know, to uproot and to live so far from home and, and, and comforts of life here to put up with that over there every day. Uh, the most recent reports is that people are getting interrogated, the KGB might be involved, there's a whole bunch of people threatening Jeff every single day. They're about to go on Christmas holidays and have a little bit of a break, but the pressure is real. But I suspect Jeff and Beth know when they take uh, this part of John's Gospel to heart. They know that, well, Jesus says very truly, unless a kernel of wheat dies and falls to the ground, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. Anyone who loves their life will lose it. Anyone, uh, while anyone who hates their life in this world will keep it for eternal life. 
Whoever serves me must follow me. And where I am, my servant will be also. My Father will honour the one who serves me. What Jesus does for us sets the pattern for how he wants us to live. Not that we're able to go and atone for the sins of the world like his sacrifice did, but he still calls us to follow him and to give our lives in service. What buttons is the Spirit of God pressing in your heart this morning? What are you holding on to that you need to let go? And how is he calling you to lay down your life and serve? You've heard, I trust you believe. Will you obey? Amen. Our Lord Jesus has paid the ultimate sacrifice for us and now he calls us to lay down our lives for him. And we're going to reflect on this as we sing our closing song, The Servant King. Please stand. Free!
sacrifice of your son Jesus on the cross for us and we pray that as we head into this new week uh, that we won't uh, be attached to things of this world but we would seek to lay down our lives and to serve you uh, in all that we do. Amen. Please be seated. Thank you for joining us for this time of worship. That brings uh, an end to our formal time together. Uh, we, uh, I hope you have a, a good time uh, in fellowship together and go well into the week. Thank you.